Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Box of Treacle Edition. It's Wednesday, December 19th, 2018. On today's show, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, what seems like a bit of cynical IP stretching, turns out to be a masterful genre picture we discuss with uh, Slate's own spideologist, Jamel Bowie. And then Love Actually haunts the dreams of the Western imagination. We discuss why with Slate's other ex-editor-in-chief, David Platts. And finally, if TV is so peak, is so great, is so fucking awesome these days, why is it so blah? Joining me today is uh, Slate's ex-editor-in-chief, now managing, co-managing editor of the LA Times, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. That's also not my title, but we can just leave it for today. <laughs> I think you should just cycle through every job until he hits on your job. Like at some point he'll call you, you know, he'll call you a, a construction specialist and a sanitation engineer, and eventually he'll actually hit on your job title. Just never call me entrepreneur in residence, which is the worst title that anyone <laughs> could have in 2018. That is so awesome. But listen, we're both hiding the truth, which is uh, that like the old British 60s TV spy show, The Prisoner, all ex-editors-in-chief of Slate are renditioned off to a secret island somewhere where their uh, secrets uh, die with them. Uh, who can say? <laughs> who can mm-hmm. say? Let's say hi to Platts, who's sitting right next to you on the littoral. <laughs> the pina coladas here are delicious. <laughs> and of course, we're joined by Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Listen, uh, a little bit unusually, a couple of bits of business before we start. The first is that I think there are some audio technical difficulties with Julia, so she may sound a little sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, phone line-like, first wave uh, audio technology, remote audio technology-like. And the second is that I made a joke last week that some listeners, more than one, has interpreted as sexist. I was never, ever calling my two co-hosts, you know, I was never trying to treat them like they were dogs. When I was saying boo-boo doggy, I was making a stupid joke about how muzzy-headed I get when I think about dogs, and I'm incapable of rational argumentation about them because I love them so much. It was a bad joke, and it was cringeworthy, but it was not, I hope everyone understands, it was not intended as uh, sexist or as condescending. Oh, can I just come out of that, Steve, by saying, and I said this to the couple people who wrote in, and to anyone who will write in, I would say the same, that neither Julia nor I experienced that at all as sexist or condescending. We maybe thought it was, like, goofy as hell. (laughs) But, um, Just but we were stupid, yeah. far from offended, and uh, I, I like your your doggy self, and uh, I like your dog. Oh, you. uh, thank you, Dana. I appreciate that. All right, moving on. How do you push more Spider-Man IP out into the world without disturbing the canon? You create alternate universes, like string theory-like parallel realms that, thanks to some supervillain, super-colliding nonsense, begin to intersect with one another. Lo and behold, you can tell and retell Spidey stories while keeping the main source pure and intact. Seem cynical? Well, I have a surprise for you. Craft 
wit, humor, and more craft by simple tautology make any movie good. And this movie has all of these in abundance. This is a terrific movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Who knew this computer animated uh, addition to the Spider-Man storylines begins with a young boy at a magnet school missing his old friends at his old public school. He has a cop dad who's a lovable disciplinarian looking for the first clue into his son's inner life. This serves as a jumping off point for a very cool and not at all exploitative superhero movie. You can tell I loved it. I think most people have. Uh, Before we listen to a clip, let me introduce our guest, Jamel Bowie, our spideyologist. Jamel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jamel, you probably do not need reminding, is the uh, chief political correspondent for Slate and uh, contributor to CBS News. Why don't we listen to a clip and then uh, dig in? What are you doing, bud? I can't move. Yeah. Okay, relax your fingers. We don't have time. Just, just let go. Be in the moment. I am in the moment. It's a terrible moment. They're right there. They're gonna see you. Miles, you gotta unstick. What do you do to relax? Relax. Needless to say, I, Oh, for crying out loud. Calling it Chris now, baby. I'm aware. Ah! Teenagers, just the worst. Miles, where did you go? I'm right here. Where? I can't see you. I'm right in front of you. Can Spider-Man turn invisible? Not in my universe. <laughs> you just poked me in my eye. This is incredible. Some kind of fighter. Jamel, uh, am I right in thinking that this something about this movie gets at the essence of the comic book, the old Marvel comic books, uh, almost better than any live action superhero movie could there's something unique and really wonderful about the spirit of this one i think that's right i think part of what it captures is the sense of boundless possibility that comics have that even comics can't quite communicate just because of the limitation of the form um but the really exceptional and inventive visual styling of the movie i think it, it, it brings that out. Um, everything is hyperkinetic. Everything is, the screen is often very busy, but not in a distracting way whatsoever. Um, the, the mix of styles, the homages to pop art, to the original Spider-Man comics themselves, to everything, I think gives, um, uh, or creates this feel, um, from the visuals that, along with the story, which is really a very traditional Spider-Man story of a a young man trying to figure out his way in the world, Um, it all comes together to produce something that really does have the thrill of reading a very good comic book. Yeah, I mean, I love that element of this film, Jamel. I also, I mean, I just had the response sitting in the theater of feeling like I was watching a breakthrough, feeling like I was watching something truly aesthetically radical and beautiful. And I can't decide whether I hope that the next 15 years of animated films try to be this movie, or I hope that it's like a beautiful, perfect anomaly that, that exists in its own self. But, you know, one of the things that's striking watching this movie is they're like, wait, we've been sitting, we've been living through 15 years of superhero adaptations that have, seem to assume that what's fascinating about comics is the mythology that they've created rather than the aesthetic style and mode of um, storytelling that they've built. And, you know, smarter and much more knowledgeable people than I have talked about the relationship between the frame language of comics and the frames of cinema in the past. And I, I would prefer to 
Jamal or Dana on those questions. Not you, though, Steve. Um, <laughs> but, but I just, I, I, my mind felt blown. And as someone who intellectually appreciates and understands and respects the love that a lot of people whose critical taste I respect have for comics and, and their um, kind of response to that format, including you, Jamal, and my dear husband, lots of other people I know who love them. I just have never responded to the form that way, where I felt like when confronted with one of those texts, I really get how to read it and how to move through it and how to how it is that that frame-by-frame style of storytelling can elevate a narrative. I always feel a little bit like I'm reading in translation for some reason. And one thing I loved about this movie was that it, it both was a incredibly beautiful aesthetic experience on the screen and also made me feel like, oh, I wonder if this is what it feels like to someone who totally loses themselves in that style of storytelling. But this is almost a rendering of um, what what reading a comic can be like for someone who's really steeped in the form. I also will say that, you know, it's just so great. I mean, you know, speaking of love, actually, I'm so glad to be watching the movies of 2018 and not the movies of 2003. Like, it's wonderful to have a, a biracial non-white Spider-Man as the hero of our movie. It's wonderful to, uh, you know, have women be crucial characters in ways that don't feel cat or uh, tokeny. It is... And it just felt modern. It felt modern in about 16 different ways. And I went into the film with pretty high expectations and came out on an absolute high of, of um, appreciating cinematic achievement. Dana, you're the film critic. Am I crazy? Tell, tell us what you thought. I mean, I'm so glad we're talking about it. I don't think that I'm quite as in love with it as any of you guys. I saw it with my daughter, who's 12. And uh, and we both walked out of it sort of saying the same thing. The thing that we arrived at at dinner afterwards that it, is that it was simultaneously mind blowing and a little bit boring. I mean, it visually and, and experientially is absolutely Julia, as you describe. And it's kind of hard to you sort of have to be in it to have that experience. But, you know, that has to do with the comic style framing that Jamel was talking about and the textures, you know, the kind of dot matrix, almost Roy Lichtenstein look of the background. And as Julia was saying, the way that it kind of immersively throws you into the experience of what it is like to read a comic as opposed to watch a conventional movie that just happens to take its story from the comics. And all of that was the mind blowing part. Um, There was also a lot, we haven't mentioned this, but there was a lot of almost 2001 style trippiness toward the end as the different universes Mm -hmm. started to converge and Miles Morales, the main character, has to send each different spider creature back to their own universe. Um, There were these long scenes that were a lot like Cure Delay's trip through the psychedelic time-space continuum at the end of 2001, right? Just like crazy magenta bubbles coming at you and everything is very psychedelic and all that stuff was really cool. I also thought, though, that the end got a little bit repetitive with lots and lots and lots of, you know, big fight scenes happening in magenta bubble crazy universes and resolutions to all those stories. And although, Julia, I hear you on the modernity of, for example, the way this movie treats ethnicity, my 12-year-old daughter was not at all happy with the way it treated girls and women. She came out saying, oh, that's what we get? Gwen Stacy, who is pink and teal and blonde and is also set up as a love interest for the main character, you know, she wanted, I think she wanted more girl action than that. And Steve, to cut back to last week when we were talking about another animated movie 
that satirizes its own IP of its own company, uh -oh. um, Ralph Wrecks the Internet, Ralph Breaks the Internet. My daughter has seen that in the intervening week and liked it much better and felt like she hmm. she was much happier with the with the representation of girls in that movie. So that's just one small part of what I think overall is an amazing experiment that comes off beautifully well. But I think I was slightly disappointed just because film critics were, you know, clutching their garments and falling to the ground over this movie. And uh, I think Leonard Maltin said this is the best animated movie I've ever seen. And I love the Lego movie, as you guys know, which was uh, made, created by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were also the executive producers. And one of them wrote um, this one. And so for me, it did not quite do for Spider-Man comics what the Lego movie did for Legos. <laughs> but um, but I gre greatly admired it. And I'm very glad we're talking about it. Jamal, obviously one of the exciting things about this movie is having uh, a black or biracial Spider-Man figure on screen. I'm curious uh, what your assessment is of how the film handled those themes. I think it handled it very well. I can imagine some complaints about this being an animated film and not live action. Um, that, you know, why can't we have a live action Miles Morales? I, I kind of think that this is going to be so successful that there'll be a lot of pressure on Marvel Studios because um, the, the the you know the weird the the weird background of all of this is that Sony Entertainment owns the rights to Spider-Man but is sort of working with Marvel Studios to do kind of separate Spider-Man projects within the Marvel Studios world, um, but Sony still retains its ownership of all other Spider-Man properties, and so this is like an attempt to differentiate what they're doing from what's Mar what Marvel is doing. But I expect after this that. Um, there'll be a lot of pressure on Marvel Studios to incorporate elements of it into their uh, universe. The thing I'll say I, I liked a lot about the film, and I think that the thing I think makes it very different, not just from other Spider-Man movies, but from other superhero movies, is how uh, grounded Miles' character is, um, that he does actually seem like a teenage kid in Brooklyn um, and not just sort of like a generic avatar. And I think ways that um, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker was, or Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker was. Uh, and I think that the extent to which Miles Morales feels like a real kid um, who uh, would fit in in like real life, it sort of, it makes the movie work where it really grounds the film um, and is sort of an idea. I think like the best attempt I've seen thus far to incorporate the growing diversity in comic books onto the screen, which still is still, it still hasn't fully made its transition, even in the Marvel stuff. Um, you know, in the comic books, there's taking legacy characters and either giving them, giving the identities to new people who are diverse, who are black, who are women, who are Asian American. Or there's just sort of straight up reinterpreting a legacy character as being non-white um, or being a woman, uh, and that hasn't really happened on screen yet. And it would, you know, people would it would be a, a big controversy if you were to suddenly do that. If if, a, if they announced, I don't know. In the past, I'd say something like, "Oh, Ant Man," but they've already been making Ant Man movies. I made two of them, so I can't think of any superheroes. <laughs> I can't think of any sort of off the wall superheroes that uh, that they're going to make movies out of because they've already they've already like reached down to the obscure characters at this point. Yeah, I think your point though about the specificity and the realism of of his world, just the particularity of the moment is at, the way in which it shorthands his parents and their personalities and professions and his relationship to his new school 
um, and even kind of the divide in that school. But it, the combination between realism and then the psychedelic fantasia yeah. of the finale, which like give me that over the, you know, explosion fest and like zooming spacecraft hurtling into the ether of most other movies of this sort. Um, I, I, you have not budged me, Dana, with your lukewarm yeah. response. I think this movie is a masterpiece and I loved it. And I hope, I, I, I hope there's more. Yeah, let me. We have to wrap it. Let me jump in and say I totally agree with that, Julia. And I think uh, you put your finger on it. It is. It is that combination of the Fantasia and the really human story. We should shout out to the somewhat unsung heroine behind not only this movie but all of the best Spider-Man movies is Amy Pascal, the film executive who had this IP under her wing at, I think, Sony when she was the head of the studio and shepherded the first Spider-Man movies to the screen with unusual choices for both the star and the director, you know, Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire, and made really, really, really good movies. And her name is on this one, too. And I just do not think that's an accident. But uh, Anyway, Jamel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a total pleasure. Thank you for having me, as always. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. All right, before we dig in any further, Dana, I, uh, I'm assuming we have some business. What do we, what do we got? Other than telling people about what's in the Slate Plus segment today, our only bit of business is to note that Slate has opened an online store. So if you're looking for stocking stuffers that might include actual socks, always fun to put socks in socks, you can get Slate socks, which I'm actually planning on maybe getting a pair of for myself at the Slate store. There are many other branded merch items there for your favorite magazine, I hope. And you can find them at shop.slate.com. That's shop.slate.com. Today in Slate Plus, we're going to be having our beloved producer, Benjamin Frisch, come out of his booth and into the studio to talk to us about Decoder Ring, his podcast with Willa Paskin, our TV critic. I believe that I endorsed a couple weeks ago the most recent episode of Decoder Ring, which is called Sad Jennifer Aniston and is all about the history of the tabloids and their pursuit of Jennifer Aniston as the avatar of lonely middle-aged womanhood. How little that has to do with her actual life and experience has nothing to do with the tabloids' enthusiasm for her. It's a very strange relationship between celebrity and audience and media. And Benjamin's going to come in and talk about how they put that show together. So Decoder Ring in Slate Plus. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for the first year. You can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show. You won't have to hear me pitching Slate Plus if you get Slate Plus. And you'll get many other great benefits. If you want to learn more about it, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, back to the show. Love Watch It, Hate Watch It, since its release in 2003. The film Love Actually has attained the status of a dual classic, holiday classic, and rom-com classic. For those who don't know, it's an anthology of little Christmas season vignettes. They start sort of everybody, actually. Liam Neeson, Emma Thompson, Hugh Grant, Alan Rickman, 
The movie is widely beloved, but also narrowly reviled. The intellectuals hate it. Some with the heat of a thousand suns. We'll get into that. But first, we're joined by uh, David Platz, who was, of course, once editor-in-chief of our own slate and uh, has now gone on to be the CEO of Atlas Obscura, the wonderful travel and exploration website. David, welcome to the other GabFest. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, it's good to be here. Before we listen to a clip, let's let's uh, just clear up a misperception for me, which is that a I think of you as an intellectual, and b you like the movie Love Actually. How do we get to uh, reconcile these two things? Um, well, Steve, first of all, your formulation is insane because there are plenty of intellectuals um, whom a group with whom I do not identify who love Love Actually. Um, <laughs> but I'm here because I love Love Actually. And uh, I've never understood the kind of crazy, uh, cold-hearted, cynical, vicious, anti-love actually people in the world. But I guess I'm going to get a chance to experience some of it directly today. Okay. Well, I think we've laid the groundworks for what promises to be a uh, a, a fun segment. But why don't we listen to um, why don't we listen to a clip from the movie? Just a moment, or is it something else? Hmm? Maybe. School? Are you being bullied? Or is it something worse? Can you give me any clues? No? You really want to know? I really want to know. Even though you won't be able to do anything to help? Even if that's the case, yeah. Okay. Well, truth is, actually, I'm in love. Sorry? I know I should be thinking about mum all the time, and I am. But the truth is, I'm in love. And I was before she died, and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Aren't you a bit young to be in love? No. Oh, oh okay. Oh. Okay, so as much as I would like to take our relationship, David Platts, into role-playing, I, I refuse to be the, the cardboard cutout love actually hating intellectual for this segment. So instead, I'm going to call on a couple of ringers. Stephen March has written, I would say that I hate love actually, but the truth is that no word I possess, hate, contempt, loathing, disgust, can properly capture my rejection of this film. Or uh, or Christopher Orr over at the Atlantic Monthly, a wonderful film critic says, so take the film on its own titular terms. What does love actually tell us about love actually? Well, I think it tells us a number of things, most of them wrong and a few of them appalling. David Platt's not just a bad, but a dangerous film. Um, go ahead and defend it. See where it gets you. Look, it, it hits me at a really deep level, Steve. So so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna engage in a in a uh, deconstruction of the text at, at, at with the theorists that you like to to bandy about here on the Culture Fest. It just there's beautiful people falling in love. There is excellent comedy. The Bill Nye. I challenge anyone to watch Bill Nye in this movie or Nye Nye, however you say his name, and not find him extremely funny. I challenge anyone to watch the Colin Firth. Uh, a ludicrous subplot of him falling in love with that beautiful woman in Portugal and the ridiculous of thatness of that and not um, feel your heart uh, grow a couple of sizes. Um, not to, to, to see the Billy Bob Thornton American president humiliated by the fine Hugh Grant uh, uh, prime minister. 
Uh, how can I, I just don't I've never understood why people get so worked up over it. It's, it's, it's obviously a piece of fluff. It's not a deep movie, but it is. It's like a, it's a tasting menu of small delights. <laughs> and also, and I've thought, I'm going to make one final point. I mean, not final point, one final introductory point, which is all the people who seem to hate love actually are Christians who celebrate <laughs> Christmas. As a Jew, oh, as a Jew, I think oh one reason God. why I find it easy to watch and one reason why my entire Jewish family oh, loves it God, so- is that, that there's no, we have no associations. I feel like the Christians who celebrate <sighs> Christmas are like, this is, this is somehow damaged or, or or um, made our holiday seem corny or ridiculous or or disgraceful. Whereas for me, like I don't have any associations with Christmas. I don't care about Christmas, and so for me, it's just like pure pure sweet pleasure. So this this defense begins in degustibus and devolves into identity politics. I reject it on both scores. I'm gonna Julie. I'm gonna hand it over to you quickly. But two reasons this movie is, is first my bona fides. I like Richard Curtis. I thought Notting Hill was as close to a perfect light rom com as you can get. I do. Don't, do not have a skin reaction to his sensibility uh, or his movie making. Two reasons to hate it. I'm borrowing one, I should say, uh, from Stephen March. The Curtis has, inter- when you look at his body of work, he's internalized the English class structure and the uh, and and the the genre structure of the fairy tale, and he's brought them together and made them sort of plausibly acceptable to contemporary audiences. So, for example, he switches the genders, and the person with power uh, in Notting Hill is the is the is the woman. She has power not because she's an upper cross twit but because she's an american film actress okay he made something very i think very intelligent uh, out of that the second reason to hate it is that okay this is a series of little o henry stories all anthologized together um and what he did in doing that what he does is he takes all of the most mawkish and manipulative bits of the rom-com without the redeeming feature of the good rom-com which has a lesson about the hard work uh, 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 and and some truth telling about the nature of actual love and actual sex. With that missing, all you get is this horrible box of treacle. <laughs> <laughs> I came. Re- I came to the is knife it, fight. Is, with is the it a knife. box? Is it a box uh, that is wrapped up by Rowan Atkinson in a hilarious <sighs> ten-minute-long scene where, with ribbons tied? Is it a box like that or a different kind of box? Can I propose a third way or, di- or a different sort of uh, sort of argument with our, our pal David here? By all means. So I, my response to this movie upon rewatching it, I was surprised by. And in fact, it caused me to insist that we try to get David on for the segment because I remember liking this movie. I've watched it a few times in the past. I thought it was a very well-made mechanism. Uh, it remains a very well-made mechanism. I cried probably five times watching this movie. Like, its ability to, with very little um, depth in all of its various vignettes, sketch little moments and then trigger your emotional catharsis at the sweet sight of people falling in love. It's incredibly powerful. The cultural experience that it reminded me most of was reading a Dan Brown book where you were like, Jesus Christ, this guy sure knows how to write a page that makes you want to turn the page and read the next page. Like he's good at plot, but he's very bad at sentences and thinking. And I, I had that same response to this movie. I wanted to like it. I wanted to be the defender. I wanted to be like, well, actually it's great. All the haters can go to hell. Um, however, as the first woman to chime in uh, on this panel, I would say that this movie's gender politics are insane, and it is not uh, an effete exercise to consider it as a text um, to point out 
<laughs> that uh, nearly every boss is in a relationship with an underling. Nearly every woman who has a modicum of wit or like complication in her life cannot find love. And the only women who can find love are the ones who just like blink and twitter their eyelashes. Um, the, the most ludicrous plot of all is Laura Linney's character who's pining for some handsome uh, other fellow in his in her office um, and also has a mentally unstable brother. And she and the office hottie like finally have a slow dance and then they go home to her apartment and then they're about to have sex immediately because I guess that's what you do. Uh, and then the phone rings once and she picks it up because it's her sad brother and the office guy is like, love is about interruption like life or something to that effect and then the phone rings again and he's like oh, i'm out of here <laughs> and then and then the plot is and then like they look mournfully across the chasm of the office cubicles at each other is like well alas love between us could never possibly be found and then she like on well first of all your accents is, are totally wrong because that dude out. has a Wait, south american accent and she's got an american accent out. so stop with the fake british accent <laughs> Okay, fine. And that's your rejoinder. And then, like, when everyone else is finding love, she's, like, snuggling up with her brother and, and doomed to caretaking spinsterhood. Uh, and what the hell, man? What the hell? But, but you're, So your entire beef with the movie is that the Laura Lenny subplot, she doesn't get love, even though she's a smart, beautiful, uh, capable woman. That's, I didn't hear your, your that. Is, so if they cut that subplot out, it would be okay. I didn't hear, I didn't hear no, that as the would entire you, beef. Would you like me to close read the other subplots? Okay, here's another one. So uh, Hugh Grant is the handsome, dashing new prime minister. He uh, risky businesses around 10 Downing, uh, practically in his skivvies. He uh, is very concerned to realize that, like, the tea helper, like, he's got, like, a butler, a housekeeper, and, like, a lady who brings him cookies. And, uh-oh, he's terribly attracted to the tea cookie lady. Um, and they they have a bunch of awkward exchanges. And in the climactic scene, you know where he tells uh, Billy Bob Thornton's sort of George Bush impression, I guess, to where to put it. Um, when you When you watch what has happened that causes that moment, Initially, in from the lens of 2018, he stumbles upon Natalie, the cookie girl, with Billy Bob, and there's sort of a moment, there's a drink, and there's a moment of closeness, and Natalie's face looks ashen, and you're like, oh, shoot, Billy Bob, like, tried to cop a feel. Um, and you think that the stirring pro-British speech that Hugh Grant's character gives is because of his protective instincts, because of the Me Too moment he has just witnessed between the president and Natalie. And then it comes out later in the movie when, surprise, they finally get together. She writes a Christmas card apologizing to the mm-hmm. vice, to the prime minister for flirting with Billy Bob Thorne, something she apparently did consensually but never meant to do because all along she truly belonged to the prime minister. And you realize that actually that scene is supposed to read as just like he's jealous and sad because she was flirting with the president, not because she thinks... Not because he thinks that she was taken advantage of by the president. And in fact, what happens in between those things is he fucking fires her. So he basically fires her, we think, because he can't stand to be near her in the first modern read. But when you realize he just fired her because he thought she was flirting with someone else. <laughs> I, what? I totally forgot fuck? that. Well, to be I fair, he just he just redistributes her, as he puts it, to his chief of staff. Could we just redistribute her? I think she gets some, mm-hmm. some other job in government. But wait, I just I have to speak up and follow up on the, the Hugh Grant story. But let me just place myself first. I mean, I have a lot of things to say about this movie that have nothing to do with loving or hating it exactly, But ha- although I did basically hate it. But, but with the 
incredible datedness of this movie that's only 15 years old, right? It came out in, in fall 2003. We're now in 2018. And this movie, in terms of gender politics and also just sort of the the, the non-omnipresence of technology and just the, the entire way that it treats class and race and social milieu is so dated. It's incredible how much has changed in 15 years that this kind of went under the radar. I mean, just to drill down a little more into the ridiculous Hugh Grant prime minister story, this is only... A few years after Bill and Monica, right? And uh, and that young woman resembles Monica, the tea carrier for the prime minister, right? She wears a beret. She's a, she's a brunette. She's a little bit curvy in a way that is commented on constantly throughout the movie as, oh, what a fatty. What a chubby. Let's call her Plumpy. That's her nickname. Her thighs are gigantic. And the woman is like, I don't know, as as one of the, uh, the reviews that we read in preparation for the segment says, she's maybe a size six, right? So there's like fat shaming throughout. I think there's also a moment when Emma Thompson fat shames herself, which is just so absurd. Right. And then and there's just to jump in the fat shame sister of the uh, Portuguese hottie. I mean, the, it's just this movie's so awful, David. <laughs> oh but, but all right, here, here's um, you know any 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 document any document that that's that is that old. I agree. Uh, you know, there's a huge risk. Uh, and, the and dark ages gonna, of I'm 2003. I'm not going to argue with the very close reading, the very careful and smart points that Dana you've made and Julia you made about it. Not. But so wait, I want to hear. Even. But wait, I want to hear Dana. Sorry, I interrupted. Dana, I want to hear your. Beyond that, your feelings about the movie. Oh, well, you and I, I think we were in the same boat where we had never seen the movie. I sort of felt like I'd seen it because it's just always on at Christmas and ever, it's a meme and everyone talks about it. And I sort of knew most of the plot points and, and had never really cared about seeing because it, it just sounded silly and sappy. But I'm really glad I saw it because it's so strange. I mean, I, I did not exactly enjoy the movie, but it really does point up, as you said, it's like this blender of rom-com tropes where only the worst stuff stays in. And the part that really actually makes a rom-com fun to me, which is the screwball part, right? Like the two people learning about each other and repelling each other and attracting each other and kind of fighting their way, struggling their way to some kind of relationship is is gone. And essentially, this movie is all about that airport moment, which happens multiple times. And of course, it opens and closes in an airport. But that, you know, the moment where somebody runs after somebody else, which is still, of course, happening in rom-coms. It happened in Crazy Rich Asians this year. There was a, an airport resolution to the romance. But this movie is so because it's so chopped up and it's about nine or ten different little mini love stories only gives you those moments. And so it really makes you see the absurdity of us ever believing in any of those moments at all, which to me, the crowning absurdity was probably Colin Firth learning Portuguese so that he could fly to Lisbon, I think is where he goes to and tell his former maid who he's never spoken to in a language that they both understand, although it's the idea is that they communicate and they're soulmates. Okay, fine. But like the the class distinction between the two of them, the fact that he was her employer, the fact that the very first thing he says to her is not like, I'd love to get to know you. Let's go have some Portuguese tapas together. But like, will you marry me? And she says, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost like I, I can see the camp value and I can sort of see if you're a real rom-com person and you like almost sort of rom-com mashup YouTube videos or something, how this could touch you and make you cry. But if there's any desire for any kind of substance between the two, you know, people that are being attracted to each other, this movie just doesn't deliver. Oh, wait, another way. Wait, one more thing. One more thing. dispute that premise. Like, that you, it's all, you know, squeezed. So the rom-com is told with that one, with the Aurelia and whatever his name is. It's told really tightly. It's told in about seven minutes. But they do have the kind of the meeting cute. They do have the conflict. They do have the, you know, the, 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 the disagreement 
arguments. They do have, you know, the the breaking apart and the coming together. It's just it's it's done in seven minutes. And it has and that shortness and the shorthand of it is ludicrous. It's true. But it for those of us who, you know, who aren't cold hearted, it <laughs> there is something incredibly sweet and warm and not at all problematic. And and I think I mean, this actually gets to I, I the politics of it. You guys have all pointed out to me and I've like, oh, shit, the politics are really terrible. But you know what? Like the there's so I get so much pleasure because I'm a conservative person and because I le- genuinely love like sort of romance of all sorts. And I'm willing to be, you know, yanked and yanked and have my heart yanked in that direction. Like, so what? It's like, OK, all right. There, you know, there's a b- employer employee relationship. They don't communicate well. Like, OK, all right. Good points. But it's still there. It's funny. The people are beautiful. Like their, you know, their 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 connection feels real on the screen, even if it's done in the shorthand. And so, you know, like let me enjoy it. Give me, the, let me have the pleasure of it. Like, what? Why? Why does it make you so irritated that the that people get pleasure out of this movie? I don't. That's what I don't understand. Is like nobody gets nobody gets irritated because people like pitch perfect. I mean, I never said that I got pleasure out of hating this movie. I didn't see it for fifteen years because I just didn't particularly care about it. And it was only because it came up like, why is this movie a Christmas classic? Let's talk about it on the show that I ended up seeing it. And I don't intend to go through life railing against it. But but yeah, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And something we haven't mentioned at all in relation to the datedness of a movie that's only fifteen years old. This isn't entirely the movie's fault, but it's a real mark of how the culture has changed. Is there's no gay relationship in it, right? And to the extent there's any reference at all to homosexuality, it's sort of a mildly homophobic joke that Bill Nye makes to his manager, right? I mean, that is just a, that is something that's outside of this movie's purview entirely. And I cannot imagine an omnibus romance that would happen in 2018 where there wouldn't be any possibility of same-sex love whatsoever. Right. That's a huge. That's a huge problem. I I'll say to to that point is uh, we had a Polish au pair uh, who lived with us for the last couple of years, and as one of her great final gifts to us, uh, this uh, Yagoda brought us a po- basically there is a Polish version of Love Actually. So it, they remade the movie in Poland maybe five years ago or seven years ago, and it's called like Letters to Something. But it's it's Love Actually, but they've re, you know they've reconfigured the plots. But what it showed you was, oh, my God, you can just do this in another culture. You can do it with a totally different set of people. You can have the problems be different. And it just works if, you know, because because that set of stories, you know, people are hard. I don't know if they're not hardwired, obviously not hardwired, but there are certain set of people like me who are wired to want to just quickly run through a whole bunch of of quick romances and want to be susceptible to it. And it really worked. And but your point, I mean, yeah, but 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 it. But the the fact that it doesn't have a gay couple, the fact that it's, on, it's race, you know, it's like has barely any people who aren't, uh, <laughs> poor, you know, poor Chiwetel Ejiofor is essentially yeah, the oh only God. black character, and his that, entire that, role yeah. is to get sort of yeah. emotionally cheated on by his brand new wife, Kira Knightley. Another right. horrible story. Another yeah, that, insane plot where it's like this it, dude yes. has been creep shotting yeah. you and being an asshole <laughs> to you in your entire relationship. <laughs> it turns out is secretly in love with you just because of your chiseled chin and cheekbones, uh, and instead of finding that repulsive. And like yeah. running reviled to your new husband and being like, dude, your best friend is a super fucking weirdo. You stalk her anymore. Yeah. You like flutter out of the house onto the cobbled streets and like plant and a kiss on the I mean, it's, yeah. it's appalling. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that Listen, one, I, 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 that's indefensible. Even I will not try to defend <laughs> Wait, and, oh, we found plus, his limit. I love it. Plus, one more thing. Okay, the most emotionally resonant 
relationship in this movie to me and the best acted story was between Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson as this couple where the spark has gone out of their marriage and he's thinking about cheating on her, but he never ultimately does. Isn't it really depressing that they they get no resolution whatsoever? Everybody gets Mm. happy airport hugs except for Laura Linney and Emma Thompson, who basically just have to drably continue on in their loveless lives because why exactly? That made Mm -hmm. me really sad. Mm -hmm. Emma deserved better. And so did Alan. All right. Well, let me jump in, if that's all right, and offer a theory here, which is this is this is this is my this is my deconstructive reading, David, as you said, of of the text Love Actually, which is that it's actually a, covertly a work of total genius, and that the segment about the aging pop star is an, actually an allegory for the movie as a whole, and that plot line is some old creepy pop star dude whose sell-by date was 30 years in the past records the most mawkish the most cynical the most ill-crafted christmas song puts it out and because he hawks it shamelessly and and wears his cynicism on his sleeve the thing goes to number one and i think richard curtis a supremely talented and intelligent filmmaker knew exactly what he was doing when he made this film and in fact the secondary wink in the movie is that the two real stories of a marriage on the rocks uh, and a sister whose ultimate fealty is to her suffering brother um, the fact that they get no happy resolution is his way of telling you all this other stuff happening in the airport is utter horseshit whoa that's like a magic eye moment holy fucking shit he's trojan horsing in an anti-romance message i mean there's there are a lot of us there are a lot of people and at least three of them live under my roof who are waiting for the day this movie gets remade like we're longing for (laughs) a a sequel (laughs) oh my god can it please star you and hannah rosen uh, that, no, because we'd that be, one I'd obviously watch. we'd be like the middle aged couple that gets no that gets no resolution. It'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be I want to be the guy who gets to go to the bar in Wisconsin. At the end of the movie, <laughs> Hannah would coldly greet you at the airport. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. This was incredibly fun. I mean, uh, it just I, I you know I, I thought by reputation you would savage us back, but you were a gracious, gracious guest, uh, and it was really fun to have you on, David. Thanks for coming on to talk about love. Actually. My pleasure. Will you marry me? <laughs> um, can you say it? To, Dana, will you please say it to me in Portuguese? Just say it. Come on. Do it, Dana. Por favor. Quer casar. Sorry, I'm laughing too hard. Por favor, David. Quer casar comigo. All right, now you got to run off and no, run no, off I've, to I've learned bro- English just for this. Yes, Dana. <laughs> I would love to marry you. Oh, God. I love that his Portuguese is perfect and her English is pigeon. Yet another insult to No, his Portuguese is horrible. His Portuguese is horrible. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Redeems the whole movie for me. All right, David. Have a a very Merry Christmas. (laughs) Bye. Bye. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
well, this is the time of year where we talk about TV very often with Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. She's otherwise um, disposed, so we won't have Willa on. But Willa said something, and all of the other TV critics writing TV Club this year for Slate chimed in similarly, basically saying that it was, yeah, we're in peak TV and and TV shows are very intelligently produced and there's still kind of an embarrassment of riches, but but a a new awareness is creeping in um, to their television watching, which is that it's also kind of blah and repetitive and and in the course of writing the TV Club, they're trying to work out that feeling. I'm just going to throw it to you two. I have a couple of ideas to follow up on that, but I'm curious to know what, what you think of it. Dana, I think you watch a lot of this, your TV watching overlaps with a lot of what the um, TV club is dealing with this year. What'd you make of the thesis? Do you, do you agree with it? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't know that it, I could say that it's true that my watching overlaps because their watching is even so different from one another. I mean, what most struck me reading what's posted so far and the TV club's not totally done yet, but I'm following it with great interest, including on shows that I've never watched a minute of. And one thing that keeps coming up again and again is how exhausted all these poor TV critics are. It made me happy that I I work on writing on a genre that has some end to each of its iterations, like movies have an actual beginning, middle and end that you can then go home and contemplate. And yes, you may feel oppressed by the constant presence of other movies that you should be watching, should be thinking, should be writing about. But it's nowhere near the volume and intensity of, you know, sort of trying to filter your way through the current TV universe with all of its niche platforms and and streaming, etc. And so really, Willa starts right off strong up front, just saying, I'm overwhelmed. I can't keep up with even my favorite shows. How are you guys doing in the year of 2018? And 201 so far, every critic who's responded to her has said, Yes, this is utterly overwhelming. Sonia Sarai, who I believe wrote the third entry, had some some description of spending Monday through Thursday binging an entire Netflix show after it dumps onto Netflix and then barfing up a review on Friday. And it was just this sort of very traumatic, traumatized vision of of what it is to be a TV critic. I mean, said with great tongue in cheek because they all love their jobs and love TV and have lots of things that they're passionate about and want to write about. But um, but if even TV critics feel this way, right, what about the rest of us? I mean, even you, the three of us, to some degree, count as culture critics who are watching this stuff and not feeling the need to keep up with it for our own entertainment alone, but to sort of process it as a cultural product. Um, but I just sort of, I feel for the watcher in in this universe who is so brutalized by new content and by the lack of, of the old kind of serialized week-to-week show that you're sort of allowed to wait for, you know? And it just struck me that I myself am not super crazy about the the dump and binge style of TV watching. And uh, and I wonder if it's really that great for us as a culture. And I'm not trying to be hand-wringy and say, let's go back to the old days where there were three networks or anything like that. But I'm wondering how you guys feel about this this glut and whether you are almost sort of relieved to read that if a TV critic herself feels that way, one as discerning as Willa Paskin, then maybe we're allowed to be overwhelmed too. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the I mean, the clubs at the end of the year are one of my favorite critical exercises uh, that Slate convenes. But I think what's really interesting about Willa's essay is the response that it's generated in addition to its own intrinsic argument, which is, A, all of her other fellow critics in the club have responded saying, yes, this is a phenomenon. Like keeping track of the waterfront of interesting television is uh, a different kind of job than it was a few years ago. Um, and then the response that it's engendered online with both other critics and just watchers saying like, yeah, what happens when we're at, we've been at peak TV for so long that there's a lot of television? And Willa's uh, 
conceit is that it was the year of fine TV, that there was a lot of production of television shows that had fine qualities, fine performances, fine aesthetics, perhaps were grappling with interesting ideas in a surprising way. Um, and there were many, many things that had some merit. Um, and she noted, I, I believe in the essay, that she might look back on the year entirely differently if there had been even one or two or three shows among that swamp of shows that had felt like truly glorious masterpieces to her. Um, you know, that the, that if the if the glut of production were also producing a few things that, that were bar-clearingly brilliant, uh, she might look back on the year with a different lens, but that everything felt sort of B-plus-y um, and that a glut of B-plus is a strange position for a television critic to find themselves in. I also loved a line in Todd Vanderwerf's response. He's a critic at large at Vox, I think, um, noting that he could hear the music critics from beneath their piles of promotional CDs just laughing like, what do you mean you're sad that you can't keep up with everything? Not being able to keep up with everything is like a state of existence for a music critic. So just quit your whining. Um, because obviously the the notion of comprehensive in the critical pursuit is is something that you could think differently about in different mediums. But yeah, I mean, it's it's I feel it even in our own watching, right? We we watched the first, you know, third or half of a new TV show almost every week. And at this point, I barely finish any of them, even the mm -hmm. ones I love, yeah. because I got to go on and watch the next one. Can I ask you guys, of the things that we've started this year, how many have you stuck with and or finished? Mm -hmm. I was trying to make note yeah. of that while reading all of this. And I realized that other than the shows that I already loved and watched on my own, The Americans, Better Call Saul, there were just a few of them out there, High Maintenance. Those are shows that are just my shows already in my rubric. But of stuff that we've done for this show, there's only three three shows I've stuck with this year. And there are six. There, I think a lot of them are on Willa's list, actually. There's Succession, The Good Place, which I'm not finished with, but I'm still dedicated to watching, and Killing Eve, which I watched every minute of, and I'm mm -hmm. on tenterhooks for the next season. Right. Other than that, every single one, including ones that I intended to finish, I just let drop because they weren't, they weren't quite, it was the fine thing. They weren't quite excellent enough to make me right. overcome that right. hump. What about yeah, you? I'm yeah, no, I mean, I think that this is you. You both have put your finger on the on the on the real question, which is just like that's where the the pudding gets proofed. It's do you watch these things to the end, and it's this weird embarrassment of of riches. I mean, one thing is when you have a content bubble like this, where the you know production budget for Netflix is rumored to be in the multiple billions of dollars or whatever it is, you know you're going to make a ton of content. You're going to have to hire a lot of people and the, and the talent is going to get spread thinner and thinner and thinner. You're going to end up with a bunch of B, B, B pluses and the rare, you know, must watch show that everyone is going to watch and everyone is going to finish to the end. It just becomes that much, that much uh, more precious and rare. But of her list, I watched, um, well, obviously Nanette, but um, Killing Eve and um, Howard's End. Uh, through to the end, intended to watch, but haven't yet. Little Drummer Girl, Succession, and um, to the end, and Babylon Berlin to the end, and but that's a great example of like they're just so they're so overwhelmingly pretty good, you know that 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 you can't. How do you choose between those three, right? Like what's distinctively better about Babylon Berlin than Succession or Little Drummer Girl? And so you get it's like the mule who comes to two bales of hay and starves to death. You know, I'm just sitting there staring kind of dumbfoundedly at, at, at options, having no basis on which to choose between them. 
Well, I also think there's something going on with the the quality level. I mean, my answer to the question is I finished younger and succession, which I think I sat out the succession discussion because of my HBO conflict, but um, I watched all of that. And I, I will leave off my the shows my husband actually works on. He doesn't work on the dramas over there, um, several of which I completed as well. Um, and I meant to finish Killing Eve, and I didn't even get around to that. The other thing I've done, which is insane, should I reveal the true insanity of myself? Why not? That's what the show is for, right? Um, I have replaced a lot of my podcast listening with listening to Law and Order SVU seasons like one through 12. (laughs) I basically like television is too smart and beautiful. Like you can't ignore it and have it on in the background anymore. Like you don't want to you don't want to sort of halfway ignore little drummer girl and miss. No, I want to totally ignore little drummer girl. Well, fine. But like regard like some, you know, the point of Little Drummer Girl isn't like companionable chit chat in your living room. Right. You, should, you either should ignore it completely and not watch it or you should like be saturated in its um, kind of 70s photography hues and, and Florence Pugh's um, discerning face. Right. Like Killing Eve, you got to like pay attention and watch the datelines and and um, the the te- the best television shows are a little bit more demanding and. I enjoy that when we're looking at them as critical texts for this show, but when I'm just like puttering around as I was last night, putting away the Amazon fresh order and like opening a couple boxes of Christmas presents for my kids that showed up during the course of the day, uh, I, I listened to, I basically streaming on Hulu on my laptop, put on old episodes of Honor Order SVU and then put one earbud in my ear and like left the phone plugged in across the room and just listened to it like it was an audio drama, which if you've watched enough Law and Order, you can definitely do. And I can't explain this consumption habit of mine, but it, it's it been happening all year. Um, and it's I think it's a response to like uh, the, the, the lack of consensus around what is the truly excellent thing that we're all watching and we're all talking about since everybody's pointing their attention in different directions. The reward for watching something on the same timetable and getting to like mix it up and discuss it with everyone, it's harder to find. So why not just give up? (laughs) (laughs) So then you agree with my initial proposal that there's something about the Netflix binge style of watch. I mean, obviously, it's it's a truism, but a true truism to say that it makes TV less water cooler fodder than it used to be, right? Um, The Americans was great for that reason. The finality of The Americans was a fantastic finale, I thought, to the show, but also really wonderful because we'd been waiting for it so long. We knew we were all going to see it at the same time and talk about it the next day. And it had an event quality that, you know, maybe this is just how I grew up watching TV and I miss it. But the idea that, you know, I'm wandering into some show and watching it at a pace that I have to decide that a lot of people might already have seen. I don't know. It mm. just there's there's something about that form of watching that's lonelier and is less appealing for that reason. And maybe part oh, of the reason Better Call Saul continues to be a show that I sit around and wait for, like a widow waiting for the sailor to return from sea, is because it is that old serialized format. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you know, you know what? I for I also have not finished Better Call Saul, the show that I've said is like potentially one of the best television shows ever made. I've watched about half of it, but it requires like a quietude and an attention paying. And then the other show I finished, which I forgot to mention, is Glow. I really love Glow. And Glow is sort of snackable and light, even though it has some heft to it as well. 
So that's the other one I finished. Mm. I think, you know, Willa made a really smart point that I want to make sure we include. She said, one of the craziest things about the past few years as far as TV goes is Silicon Valley's realization that TV is the killer app, the best way to maintain, if not increase, interaction with and loyalty to their product. I mean, we we should always remember that you know, the content business is a business. And if we shift from large, traditionally based entertainment conglomerates, you know, whose, you know, whose distribution channels are the movie, the the multiplex, and the bundled, you know, cable package to Silicon Valley, which is a streaming over the internet, you know, on a kind of um, a la carte basis viewing experience, that's going to affect the content. I mean, they're, they, you know, she's very definite about this. She says the TV industry has always wanted people to watch the shows more than it's cared about the quality of the shows. But as t- TV's moved from a commercial model to a subscription one and a streaming subscription one at that, industry cares less about when we watch than how much. And there's a kind of stickiness thing. And a, a lot of shows, even the very good ones, that ought to be three hours or 12 hours. There's a lot of padding. Uh, there's a lot of design around binging um, that is really based essentially on maximizing screen time. We've reached the point where peak TV quality is being, I think, sacrificed to this new business model. And she's pinpointed it, I think, quite intelligently. All right. Well, I should say TV Club is its always good. It's a, one of Slate's highlights of the years. It's ongoing. You should definitely check it out on the site. All right. Let's put a little bow on it. Julia, show you are most likely to finish. Killing Eve. Dana. Uh, given that I'm already caught up on Killing Eve and Succession, probably the good place. All right. I'm going to go with, it's a toss-up, uh, Succession. I'm going to finish Succession. Oh, yeah. Do it. It gets better and better. Oh, cool. Oh, that's good to know. All right. Done. Uh, all right, check it out, uh, Slate's TV Club, and moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steven, I'm actually uh, throwing back to one of the TV shows that we talked about for my endorsement. Remember how I was the one of the three of us who was the most lukewarm, although still affectionate, toward fat, salt, acid, heat, the Samin Nusrat cooking show, the four-part cooking show? Fat, salt, what order are they? Oh, okay. I'm told by our production assistant that it is salt, fat, acid, heat. Salt comes first, always for Samin. She's so into salt. And in fact, my endorsement involves salt because I have now changed my mind about Samin because I made one of her recipes from the show and it was fantastic. And it's now in my permanent baking repertoire. I made the focaccia that she makes in the the, the Italy, the first episode. Remember that great focaccia that she makes mm-hmm. the little dimples with her fingers and pours salt water over it and bakes it? Um, So because of my friend Jasmine Guillory, who's a novelist and has a weekly newsletter with baking tips, among other things, I decided to actually try it because she mentioned what an easy and satisfying recipe it is to make. And uh, this, in a way, goes to my criticism that I think that show could have taught you to cook a little bit better because Samin doesn't really tell you how simple this bread is to make. And if she had foregrounded the utter simplicity of making this focaccia, I would have made it long before. And now I'm going to make it whenever I feel like whipping up some baked good that is easy yet very satisfying and makes you feel like you can't believe that you made it and didn't get it at a fine bakery. So the only thing to know about this bread, this focaccia bread, is that 
It is incredibly easy. It's a one bowl recipe. You don't need to get out your mixer or take down your, you know, Cuisinart or anything like that. You essentially throw flour, salt, honey, and water together in one bowl, mix them up in the required proportions, let them rise for 12 to 14 hours, which is such a nice rise time because you can go to bed, wake up, make yourself a cup of coffee, and as you're drinking it, do the second phase. You don't have to punch it down, which always makes me anxious. You don't have to knead it and wonder if you've over or under kneaded it. You just simply dump out the risen dough onto a platter, do the dimple thing, let it rise a little bit more and bake it. And it's this perfect, divine, salty, delicious focaccia, which with honey on it and a cup of coffee is the ultimate breakfast of the gods. So uh, we'll post a link. I believe that the recipe is up on her show page and uh, it totally changed my mind about Samin. Now I'm going to make all of her recipes and and, and talk her up. Mm. Very cool. Julia, what do you have? Um, I want to make that recipe now. I want to belatedly uh, recommend something that you guys already recommended at segment length. I assume I didn't actually go back and listen to that show. But during my hiatus, you guys had Sam Anderson on and you talked about his book and then you talked about the process of writing books in our plus segment. So I did not start reading Boomtown until about four days ago. It is just annoying what a good writer (laughs) Sam Anderson is. Like, what a show off. It's so ludicrous. He's so smart and interesting and he's making an argument with every sentence, but they're also so taut and precise and beautiful and not showy. And, you know, the 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 writing is the window onto the force of his ideas. And somehow he fell in love with this bizarre city and 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 seems to be setting up an effort to use it as a way to lay out the various kind of uh, ways in which humans can interact with existing in the world. Like, it seems full of charming anecdote and yet to be grappling with profound questions of how humans exist. It's it's just incredibly satisfying to read and and incredibly irritating to contemplate. Ah, what did did you guys just say? Like, Sam, fuck you the whole segment (laughs) over and over again. While Steve and I sat there completely intimidated by the fact that he took on a much more ambitious project than we ever could and pulled it off so graciously. But I completely agree. And I loved Boomtown so much that I immediately passed it on with high recommendations to my man who is now permanently installed on the couch reading it himself. It's it's a commitment because it is in a very ambitious and dense book. But you're right that it's also just so full of felicities and, and jokes and things that keep you going. I'm finding it, I mean, I, I, in general, I prefer to read fiction at bedtime because I like a little plot to lure me along, but I am finding it to be very delectable. It's not a, It's not one that you have to, um, you know, slap your attention back into focus on the no, text. No, definitely it not. It stays it's, there. It's storytelling. It's all about storytelling. It's just that the storytelling incorporates a lot of history and a lot of big ideas. And a lot of basketball. Yeah, and, huh. and and makes basketball and the basketball business interesting to me in a way that I wouldn't have thought any book could. Yeah, no, he's he's the very specialist uh, fop. There is friend of the program, Sam Anderson, and he's a great writer. There is no doubt about it, and that is a great book. Um, so I'm endorsing and listener, this week. love you, Sam. Fuck you, Sam. Love you, Sam. <laughs> uh, 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 I'm endorsing a website called Five Books, which I've fallen completely in love with. It's um, Essentially, uh, I think a bunch of British eggheads um, with some American input have started a website where they go and they interview a, 
expert in a field, um, typically an academic, but not always, about the five best books on Wittgenstein or the five best books on uh, Reconstruction in America or the five best books on, you know, fill in the blank, really sort of any subject. It has an egghead bent, but it's uh, grown uh, beyond that uh, in interesting directions. And the interviews are beautifully conducted and edited. Um, and you get a fantastic um, reading list uh, out of virtually every one of these. At any given moment over the last three, four months, I've had between three and 12 uh, windows on my um, browser open to a, a five, five books um, interview. They're uh, beautifully done. I highly recommend them. The one on American pragmatism is the one that I just happened to read most recently. It's I've spent you know the last thirty years thinking about American pragmatism. I thought it was it was a wonderful introduction to that subject. Completely accessible. Very smart. Um, uh, it's just it is it is a very very well realized website, and I um, highly recommend it to all of you. Um, Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact directly with the hosts and hostesses uh, at our Twitter feed, which is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you soon. 